So one rather thuggish-looking general has replaced another one. Does it really matter? Well, I think it does. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. On Wednesday the 11th of January, Defence Minister Shoigu announced yet another reshuffle at the top of the extraordinarily clumsily named Joint Command of the Joint Forces in the Special Military Operation in Ukraine. And what's happening is that the current Joint Commander, General Surovikin, is being replaced by Chief of the General Staff, General Valery Garasimov. And what's going to happen now is that Surovikin remains present. He is now one of the three deputy commanders under Gerasimov, alongside General Alyeg Salyukov, who is the current commander-in-chief of ground forces, and Colonel General Alexei Kim, who is the deputy chief of the general staff. And this takes place at a time of actually sort of unusual possibilities of success, despite all kinds of extraordinarily costs, it does look as if the Russians are on the brink of taking the, frankly, rather small town of Soledar, which in turn will be significant because it may well actually help tilt the balance in the very long-running, very bloody and very hard, honestly, to justify in terms of the costs, operation against the town of Bakhmut. But then again, when you're that starved of victories anyone will count. Indeed, it's actually quite striking that at this time, so confident to the Russian scene that they will take Solidar is that already we've actually got something of a rather noteworthy squabble between the Wagner mercenary organization and their sort of boss and overlord, Eugenie Prigozhin, and the defense ministry, which clearly wants to instead stress the, their role instead of the mercenaries. So it's a time of success, it's a time of preparation, because almost certainly as spring nears, major offensive operations on both sides will resume. And it's something of a paradoxical reshuffle, in that in effect both Surovikin and Gerasimov are being demoted, even though this is very much framed not as a demotion. Um, the official sort of announcement just simply talks about the need to sort of raise the status of the command because of the, the nature of the operation and also to improve coordination. But there's no way of getting around it. Look, Surovikin, who quite frankly, despite the inevitable reversals on, on his watch, had only been in place for three months. And in that three months, generally speaking, observers had recognised that there seemed to be a greater logic, a greater professionalism to the Russian command. Yes, they they had abandoned Kherson, which frankly was pretty much indefensible anyway. 
They were trying to sort of consolidate their forces. You know, just generally speaking, there just see, did seem to be a sense that actually someone who knew what they were doing was in charge. And, well, obviously it was too good for the Russians to be true. So Surovikin remains in place. Formally speaking, it's not a demotion, but in practice, he was the top dog, and now he is just one of the puppies. And at the same time, for Gerasimov, this is hardly a particularly elevating move. It's very rare for a chief of the general staff to actually take a step down into theatre command. And what it does mean also is, you know, just as with all the other people who've held that position before, he now becomes responsible for everything that goes wrong, all the reversals, all the Ukrainian victories. And let's be honest, there are going to be both. It's hard to think of this as something that a 67-year-old general who's basically had gone as far as a soldier can in the Russian system was necessarily enthused about. So, of course, the question is, why this change? As you'd imagine, there's a whole series of different hypotheses put forward. So let's just go through some of the main ones. The first one, which was actually on the mill blogger telegram channel Rebar, um, and it's worth noting that the UK uh, Defence Intelligence sort of daily little sort of PowerPoint tweet said that the appointment of, of Gerasimov is likely to be unpopular with the, the ultra-nationalist community. Well, I mean, maybe. I don't think it's a particularly motivating factor one way or the other for Putin. But anyway, I mean, Rebar links this very much to the apparent failure of the Russian campaign against Ukrainian critical national infrastructure. Well, first of all, I think one has to, to wonder about quite what failure means. I mean, if, if the idea was precisely that Ukraine would be plunged into powerlessness of the electrical, if not geopolitical kind, and as a result be forced to surrender or millions of refugees would head into Europe, further exacerbating Ukraine fatigue there and so forth, then yes, of course, there was a failure. But then again, you know, that was, would have been a very maximalist uh, expectation. You know, the fact of the matter is that this, this campaign clearly has had an impact, and it's, it's having an impact. I mean, even as the Ukrainians endure, even as they find ways round all the various sort of challenges and some degree of, of Western assistance is able to, to actually make a difference there as well, nonetheless, it has created all kinds of impacts and just simply distracted and diverted the Ukrainians and demonstrated that Russia can do continue to do, I should say, heavy damage to Ukraine as a whole. It's also, although clearly has been associated with Surovikin, it's unlikely it was just an idea that he pulled out of, of the air himself. Sure, he presided over devastating air attacks on essentially civilian targets within Syria in his time as commander there, and indeed he had been previously commander of the aerospace forces. You know, but nonetheless, this is hardly a novel tactic for the Russians, and the preparations almost certainly would have begun before Surovikin was in position. So, yes, maybe, I mean, we, sh we shouldn't assume that logic necessarily always plays a role in military appointments and reappointments, but nonetheless, it's hard to see this as, as kind of a catastrophic failure for which Surovikin needed to be punished. Then we have the view of the... Russian analyst, academic, and uh, former presidential administration insider Sergei Markov, who on his Facebook channel, 
He basically put it down to the fact that Wagner, the mercenary organisation, had been making such successes precisely because it was less bureaucratic, it could make decisions much more quickly than the regular military. I have to say, actually, I'm not quite sure that we've, we've seen evidence of that on the ground, but nonetheless, that is certainly the way that Wagner sells itself as the kind of scrappy, can-do-whatever-it-takes kind of force compared with the sort of starched and incompetent generals. And in that context, uh, Markov basically makes this appointment, in his view, as something which is intended to basically tighten the chain of command within the regular military, exactly so that they can try and emulate Wagner's nimbleness well, maybe, though one could suggest that the chain of command is going to be tightened around Gerasimov's neck as a result. But the point is, look, Gerasimov's not going to be in the field. He's still, he's still chief of the general staff. He's still got a, you know, already one other job to do. He'll be based in Moscow. It's hard to see that there'll be that much change in terms of actual how decisions are really being made. So, who knows? A third hypothesis is that this is an excuse to get rid of Gerasimov, put him in a position in which he's bound to fail, and then he can be sacked. Look, I don't buy this. Firstly, because look, this war matters. It matters to Russia, but it matters in particular to Putin. He is not likely to basically be happy with the idea of some few more months of defeats, just simply to have an excuse. But particularly, it's an excuse he does not need. Putin can basically sack whoever he wants to sack, with or without good reason. And frankly, 67-year-old Gerasimov, even before the war started, there was the expectation that soon enough he would be being moved on. He'd already been, after all, the longest-serving chief of the general staff for a long time. So, as I said, I don't buy that. So, perhaps this could be essentially about factional and institutional politics. The idea is, after all, that Surovikin was just a little bit too close to Prigozhin, who, after all, had actually praised him in a way that uh, Prigozhin certainly doesn't have a tendency to praise other military commanders, quite the opposite. Um, it's also reportedly the case that Surovikin's wife actually works for Prigozhin, or rather for Wagner. So this could have been the Ministry of Defence and the General Staff wanting to basically reassert its own authority on the battlefield which is possibly true and certainly would, would fit in with this notion about the importance of coordination, which I'll come to a little bit more in, in, in a moment. But I think more convincing is the suggestion that this is actually something to do with the perceived needs of the war. I mean, as I said, that was very much the official rationale that was given in the official statement, just, you know, about elevating the status of the command, which suggests something perhaps about you know, potentially the changing scale of the operation again. Um, I'll talk in the second half about I think, what the implications may be. Um, but you know, it, it does hint that perhaps the nature of the war is changing, and some people have already tried to link it with things like we've seen uh, elements of the Black Sea fleet set out from port, the idea that this may once again become a, a bigger war, whether bigger in terms of numbers or in terms of the range of theatres that are covered, you know, is there going to be a, once again, a stab at Kiev from the north, from Belarus? I mean, I doubt it, but, you know, the, the, these are all the kind of possibilities. And secondly, this, this is issue that I mentioned of coordination. Now, in theory, in theory, the Joint Force Commander is in charge of all Russian assets in the war. 
So that obviously means all the various elements that are part of the regular military, but it also means Wagner. It means those forces of the National Guard, the Roscovardia, that are still deployed there. And that, in turn, also includes those elements of the Roscovardia that come from Chechnya and are really to be best considered Kadyrovci, in other words, the sort of personal retainers of Chechen warlord Ramzan Kadyrov. Now, of course, in practice, it was so much messier than that. We know that, for example, Wagner does not generally take orders from the Joint Force Command, or at least not without making sure that Prigozhin signs off on them. And frankly, much of the time, Prigozhin himself makes decisions. You know, he clearly has established some kind of a command cell uh, around Wagner. You know, so he makes decisions and then just simply informs the Defence Ministry what, what's going to be done. And this is part of the sort of squabbling for precedence and claims of victory. Of course, it gets very much in the way of actually coordinated operations. It took quite a while before, you know, now we actually see at Bakhmut, there is quite a considerable degree of coordination. But nonetheless, it took weeks or months for that, frankly, to emerge. And to a large extent, it's because the people on the ground care much less about the, if you'll excuse my language, pissing matches between their ultimate supervisors and much more about, you know, not dying. So coordination with Wagner has been a serious issue. So too with the Roscovardia. Now there, I'm less certain if it's because actually General Zolotov in Moscow, the overall commander of the Roscovardia, actually demand this of his officers, or whether in practice they do it to cover their own backsides, which again is not un unknown in militaries, but especially not the Russian security apparatus. But so again, it seems to be that, you know, whereas a lot of the small-scale stuff, they accept the commands, but if there's, you know, major deployments or redeployments and the like, they will check it with Moscow first, which int introduces a certain amount of friction, but above all, delay in what's going on. And what's more... It seems to be the case that, in fact, the regular National Guard commanders have very little influence and control over the Kadyrovci, who basically take orders from Grozny. So, in practice, back in the day when Surubikin was in charge, if he wanted to give orders to the Kadyrovci, he had to give orders to the National Guard commanders, who might well feel the need to check those with Zolotov in Moscow. And then they have to sort of humbly petition the Kadyrovci to play their particular role, and the Kadyrovci will check that out with Grozny before deciding yes or no. It was a messy, messy process. However, I'm not entirely convinced. Well, actually, no, that, that's a little bit of sort of English understatement. I am deeply skeptical that bringing Gerasimov in is going to make any real difference to that. I don't think that either Prigozhin or Kadyrov are going to be impressed by the fact that Gerasimov has a higher rank within the military, unless Putin himself is willing to actually enter the fray and make it clear that people ought to be listening to Gerasimov or else, then I don't think things will change. And frankly, I see no evidence that, that Putin will be willing to do that. So, you know, I, again, I think yes... Maybe this is intended as a response to some very real challenges that have been identified, but I just don't think it's going to be an answer that works. And look, the final reason, I think, that is in some ways the most human, the most understandable, and the least justifiable, is simply Putin's impatience. You know, remember, he doesn't understand the military. He has no meaningful military experience. He clearly, you know, by the very fact of his ridiculous initial plan for the invasion 
You know, he thinks that, in fact, he can somehow understand the military just on the basis of what his cronies around him tell him and the mindset of a secret police officer rather than a, a general. And he clearly imagines that there should be instant res results when that's not the case. If one looks at the failures of the Russian military during Surovikin's three-month tenure, on the whole, these were not strategic failures. These were failures of lower-level command and perhaps, above all, the culture, the doctrine, the policy of the military. I mean, most striking, we had a, a rocket attack on a, a barracks at Makivka on New Year's Eve, which killed, it seems to be, hundreds of mobilised reservists. A big embarrassment, of course. Especially when, according to some accounts, from people like Girkin and the like, these people were assembled for a sort of New Year's Eve party and obligatory watching of Putin's New Year's Eve address in a barracks close to an ammunition dump. I mean, that, that's kind of absolutely basic stupidity. But that's the kind of basic stupidity which is on the officers in charge. There's no evidence that Surovikin himself said, take this unit, send them there, and keep them there. It's just to a large extent, I think, the fact that the you know, operational-level Russian officers haven't yet properly got their head around the implications of the Ukrainians' increasingly um, sophisticated capacity to both identify targets of opportunity and strike them with high levels of accuracy at long range, thanks to the, the combination of kit and direct intelligence and targeting information that they're getting from their allies. So, you know, this is not something that sort of we can, can turn around in a month or three months. This is much more fundamentally about problems of the Russian military in a very modern, very high-intensity conflict. But I don't think Putin understands this, and therefore, you know, since things hadn't sort of suddenly changed, then there needed to be a change on, on the, in the command level. And this is going to be quite a problem for Gerasimov because he's not likely to be able to sort of pull some victory out of his braided hat in the course of the next three months. So this is a very, very poisoned chalice. And you know, what I think is really quite interesting is because you know, we're speculating about the reasons. So too are the Russians. If you look at the Russian press, it's really interesting the degree to which they clearly don't know what's going on. Rasiska Gazeta, the official government newspaper, has this very long article about the, the transition, which I read carefully and learned absolutely nothing. It was just basically taking the official press release and just finding ways to embroider it equally blandly. Komsomolska Pravda has, again, quite a substantial interview with the uh, veteran military commentator Viktor Baranets, which, again, I mean, when you come down to it, it just tells you about you know, Gerasimov's CV, in effect. It, again, it doesn't say anything about why this move and why now. Maskovsky Komsomolets, which, you know, for a tabloid, actually, it's worth noting that it often has some of the more interesting perspectives. Anyway, one of the things that they note is the irony is that this announcement came on the very day when Vatsyom, which is the sort of state opinion polling organization, produced a poll which showed that Surovikin had actually entered into the sort of top ten positions of known politicians at number nine. 
Now, look, I just think that, that that's an interesting irony rather than anything else. I don't think we should sort of read from that that, I don't know, the Kremlin is worried about sort of Ekin's popularity or anything else. Um, but again, you know, what, what's clear, it was a nice little factoid, but they too were scrambling around to try and find something to say. So I think, you know, what, what we can say is, look, this is something that's very much come from the, I think, uh, inner workings of, of this system, shall we say. It's more about politics than anything else, but inevitably it is also about two things. One is how the war is being fought, but secondly, how they think the war will be fought. So time for a quick break, and then let me talk a little bit about the, the implications both on the battlefield, but perhaps also more broadly. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash Shadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Now, before I get on to the war again, if you'll excuse me the indulgence, a little commercial break, shall we say, just to let let people know that I'll be hopping back from DC to London briefly. And if anyone's around and is interested, on Monday the 16th at 6 o'clock, I'm speaking at the Chelsea Society. And on Sunday the 22nd, I'm speaking at the Lewis Speakers Festival. And I'll leave relevant links in the programme notes if anyone's interested in coming along. And also on the 19th, I have a book coming out, which is kind of slightly off my usual mainstream. It's uh, an Osprey book in their combat series, Teutonic Knight versus Lithuanian Warrior. If you've always wondered about how Lithuania could become something of a, a military superpower of northeastern Europe in its day and also the degree to which Teutonic Knights were not only rabid and zealous crusaders who prosecuted their crusades, not just in, in the Holy Lands, but also in Eastern Europe, but also how they basically turned that into a business, offering a kind of sort of club med experience. So for knights who wanted to go crusading, but didn't want to go all the way to uh, the Holy Land, they could pay some money, go feast, and then go hunt pagans. Anyway, as I said, that, that, that's coming out. It's quite an interesting book book to write for myself. Anyway, let me return now to rather more contemporary conflict. So, what happens? What, what happens now? Well, look, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Gerasimov. He is essentially a career military officer, a tank officer, by all accounts, competent in terms of operational command. He seemed to be quite effective overall as the sort of... Well, it's interesting because in, in, in the Russian system, the Minister of Defence will almost always be a civilian, and the Chief of the General Staff is therefore the kind of top soldier whose role is at once to be the shop steward who brings forward the, the interests and, and views of the uniformed personnel, but also to be the foreman, the man whose role is to basically crack the whip and make sure that... the soldiers do what they're told by their civilian leaderships. Now, at that, he seems to have actually been pretty effective. One can question, of course, the actual, if, you know, overall outcomes, but that's really about the sort of the, the policy decisions that were made about the Russian military. 
rather than actually that they're, they're in position. In terms of the priorities that Gerasimov was set, and that clearly he also played a part in ensuring was set, nonetheless, he seems to have been, I think it's fair to say, broadly competent. But on the other hand, nor is he by any means brilliant. You know, one of the many reasons why I have been so exercised by the way that I accidentally started this whole rubbish that there's some kind of Gerasimov doctrine, a super sneaky, cunning new way of war, is precisely that this is a man who has had no real signs of being interested, let alone capable, at higher-level deep military thought. You know, this is not the sort of person who's going to change the paradigm of military warfighting. This is, in many ways, a competent thug. You point him in the direction of a target, and he will hammer away at it, absolutely. But on the other hand, I wouldn't necessarily anticipate anything more than that. So, what does it mean that this person has now been put in charge? A person who, in my opinion, is actually much less imaginative and conceptually sort of creative than Surovikin had been. And Surovikin, who had been tipped to be a successor to the Chief of the General Staff, is presumably also going to be aware of that. Well, look, it obviously speaks to the fact that spring will bring offensives. Offensives on obviously on, on both sides. You know, the Russian strategy has been to use about half of the 300,000 mobilized reservists, the so-called Morbiks, as stiffening to basically deprive the Ukrainians of the opportunities and the momentum that were opening up at the end of last year. And you know, a lot of them died, it has to be said, as little more than just simply speed bumps. But, you know, it, it did the job. And it certainly has ensured that the kind of open goals which were left to the Ukrainians before, you know, territories where actually units were very thinly scattered and heavily under strength, are not there. You know, they're just are simply throwing in warm bodies just to ensure that there are soldiers along that line. But on the other hand, the other half, the 150,000 that remain, well, they've been held back, they've been given a little bit more training, they're being re-equipped, albeit with late Soviet kit, probably half-rusted, from old arsenals. And at least some of them are being constituted into sort of new or renewed units with an aim to reopening offensive operations beyond the sort of Bakhmut Solidar area in spring. Now, these operations, as I said in the past, I don't think they're going to make major headway. Even though 150,000 fresh troops, you know, clearly that, that's, that's no small matter. But on the other hand, they're not necessarily going to be good troops. Our experience is that you know, the, the, the Mobics, actually, they're perfectly able and willing to operate when they're essentially on the defensive, when they do not feel they've been put in totally untenable positions and so forth. You know, but, but these are not, I think, the kind of people who are going to spear through battle-hardened Ukrainian lines. But that doesn't really matter. In many ways, really, the point of these operations is to reinforce the fact that Russia is still in the fight, that this is going to be a long-term war, because Putin's only real chance of making victory is if he can basically undermine the West's will and capacity to continue to support Ukraine. I've, I've talked about this at length elsewhere, so I won't kind of um, belabor the point. But on the other hand, I mean, it does look as if Putin, with his relatively unsophisticated notions of, of what constitutes victory, you know, may well think that he needs to have something more than, you know, perhaps Solidar and Bakhmut 
under his belt. It's interesting that uh, General Mick Ryan on Twitter wondered if there could be a parallel with World War II when General MacArthur tapped General Robert Eichelberger to command US forces at Buna in New Guinea. And apparently what he said was, Bob, I want you to take Buna or not come back alive. Well, you know, it's not necessarily that he expects uh, Gerasimov to die physically, but in some ways one can suspect that Gerasimov may well die career-wise if he doesn't make some kind of victories. But this, can, this, is, this is going to be interesting because you know, the Russians will be launching offensives, but so too will the Ukrainians. You know, it's not as if they're, just been, they're sitting back waiting to see where, where the punch will fall. The Ukrainians will be wanting not only to disrupt Russian military operations, but also to make advances of their own. Because, A, they're committed to regaining their territory. B, they also have the need for victories to maintain the, the morale of momentum. And C, they also feel the need to demonstrate to the West that there is return on investment. I mean, it's quite interesting at the moment that the debate is very much shifting towards whether or not uh, tanks, or rather Western tanks, because then I think this is quite annoying. Some of the debate just simply says, oh, you know, will tanks be sent to the Ukrainians? Well, tanks have been, been sent for quite a long some time. The Czechs were the first ones to actually send tanks. But the point is, what they were sending were you know, reconditioned, but nonetheless Soviet-era tanks, that actually in many ways made a lot more sense because the Ukrainian crews, they knew how to use them, they knew how to maintain them. Now we're talking about Western-built tanks. Um, there's been a lot of debate about the German-built Leopard 2 that is indeed a you know, very effective design. It may well be that Britain will actually be, first of all, be sending their own Challenger 2s, which is a, a, big, a big bruising brute of a beast. The thing about tanks is tanks are very much of value in the offensive operation. And I think, again, what this says is the degree to which the Ukrainians also are reconfiguring their forces and also, as a result, reshaping their shopping lists to reflect this kind of activity. So, you know, again, the whole point is that uh, just as no plan survives contact with the enemy, the Ukrainians are absolutely going to have their own vote in what's going to be happening in spring. And so this is, this is going to be really quite, quite a challenge for, for Gerasimov. And he does need a victory. And this is why I do wonder if he will be using his undoubtedly higher political profile and clout to be pushing for some kind of escalation to allow him to give more of a chance that there will be some kind of, of, of a victory. Now, when one uses the E word, escalation, people have a tendency to shift to the N-word, nuclear. I still think it's vastly, vastly at this stage unlikely that we're talking about the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Let me reassure people on that one. But the point is there are other ways of escalation. You know, there is, for example, the possibility that Belarus will be crowbarred into actively joining the conflict. Again, I think that's highly unlikely, but not quite as unlikely as the nuclear option. The point is that uh, Lukashenko in, in Minsk, he knows full well that this would firstly essentially finalise his subordination to Moscow. Belarus would just become, a, in effect, another province. Secondly, it would be exceedingly unpopular with his own country and particularly actually his own army that is signalling that he doesn't want to get involved. And you know, what's the risk if actually units start to refuse to, to, to go? Or indeed that it 
creates terrible losses, which in turn rekindle the public protest. So, uh, you know, I think Lukashenko will do everything he can short of that. He will try to placate Putin by allowing the Russians to raid Belarusian arms stockpiles, to use Belarusian training facilities, and indeed army trainers to prepare their mobilized reservists and such like. But all of that, I think, is in order to forestall the need for him to be pushed into anything further than that. There is one other card that Putin has been very, very unwilling to play for obvious reasons, but nonetheless he might be forced to do so, and that is conscripts. Now, mobilized reservists are one thing. These are people who did their national service, went back into civvy street, and have then been sort of brought back into service. But there are a whole bunch of people who are still doing their national service. I mean, in total, for example, in the, in the ground forces, there's maybe up to 180,000 conscripts from, you know, obviously the, the, the spring conscripts, who, after all, doing 12 months, are anticipating coming to the end of their tour of duty, but that could easily be changed. And anyway, you also have the autumn conscripts. Well, that cohort has pretty much now completed its training. So the interesting thing is you, you have a whole bunch of troops who are probably better trained, actually, than the Mobics, who are, in the main, probably better equipped in that the Mobics are very much getting sort of, you know, hand-me-downs from, from old stocks, whereas, you know, a lot of these conscripts, they are in still you know, proper units which are still properly constituted with actually relatively modern kit. And legally speaking, if one accepts a certain, uh, you know, um, shall we say, Moscow perspective of the law, they can be deployed. Under Russian law, except when you formally declared war, you cannot force conscripts to serve outside of Russia's borders. They can volunteer to do so, but they can't be forced to do so. However, and this is, I think, always one of the key points behind the annexations of these various Ukrainian territories, now Moscow is able to, uh, to argue that these are now Russian territory and that therefore conscripts can be sent there without any legal issues. Now, the reason why this hasn't been done, in my opinion, is precisely because of the potentially massive political risks. It was bad enough with the mobilization. The mobilization, which really shattered the implicit social contract beforehand, which was, you know, Putin saying, I'll have my war, and on the whole, unless you're a volunteer soldier, you don't have to worry about it. Now, suddenly, the shadow came over every single household. That's been unpopular enough, and it absolutely has changed how Russians think about this war, the degree to which they're actually aware of it. But there is a special place for, for conscripts, um, the sense that they are, how can I put this, in some ways they are, they are still seen, certainly by, by families, as, as minors who are temporarily wards of the state. I think there is much more of an expectation that the state will, will look after them. And that therefore, look, if conscripts are deployed, then a lot of conscripts are going to be dying. And I think that potentially could have massive political fallout. And this is why Putin, I think, has been very, very hesitant to actually play that card. Beyond just generally a certain conservatism that I think means that he, he wants to feel he still has cards in his pocket, shall we say. Hang on. No, that doesn't make sense. Cards in his hand. Thank you. So, that is one possibility, though. If absolutely Gerasimov feels he needs to make some kind of victories on the battlefield, given that he cannot magically transfigurate the forces he's got, 
Given that he's unlikely to be able to resolve the issue of coordination, then what he might do is actually turn to wanting to draw on all or some of these conscripts. Now think about that. So 150,000 Mobics, and look, they, they couldn't deploy all of them. But, you know, maybe, say, another 75,000 of the, of the conscripts being deployed? I mean, that is a serious force. But in another way, that's beginning to nudge up to the size of the entire initial invasion force back in February of last year. So, you know, this is something that, again, it's not going to suddenly win the war for Russia. I don't believe that Russia will win this war. But on the other hand, it can certainly, if, if you absolutely feel that you need to make some territorial gains, particularly if you have a hope of essentially bringing the whole of the Donbass region under your control, which, you know, arguably, then I think Russia would feel that it had pretty much achieved the best it possibly can with, with Crimea, the Crimean Corridor, and the Donbass under its control. That's the point when they would probably try to be looking for ways of freezing or fixing the, the contest. Well, you know, th this, this, is, this is about the only way I can think of that Gerasimov could, could seriously think of being able to achieve that. So that's something to very much watch. What are the other implications? Well, obviously, that there, there is a political implication. I mean, yes, Gerasimov's career is now dependent on this, and you know, it's a very poisoned chalice that he's been given with a, with a hearty encouragement to, to drink deeply of it. That may also in, impact uh, Shoigu himself. Again, a lot, lot, of, lot of thoughts about whether or not uh, you know, Shoigu will survive. You know, Gerasimov, back in, in December, we were told that he was about to be sacked shows us that we really shouldn't listen too much to the kind of rumours that, that swirl around. But uh, Shoigu... Look, although, as I've said in the past, one should always be wary of writing Shoigu off. He is a very highly competent political operator. But nevertheless, I think it would take even more than his own skills to be able to avoid responsibility for two crucial things. One is the degree to which Russian military reform had been clearly uh, an example of Pokazuka, of, of eyewash, basically creating the appearance rather than necessarily the form of a truly modern military. I mean, in fairness, you know, it was much more effective than it had been before the reform process, but still it was nowhere near as effective as it looked. And secondly, he, and indeed Gerasimov, have to accept the blame not for any active role in the creation of the invasion. There's no signs that, that either of them were particularly sort of encouraging Putin to invade, nor that they played any particular role in drawing up of the, the, the ludicrous and unrealistic initial plan, the, you know, the whole two-week plan or whatever. But what they did do is they, they basically allowed it to happen. They did not try to impede that they did not speak out. And look, I understand why this is an authoritarian and personalistic regime. It is not good for your continued career and prosperity to set yourself up against the boss and above all tell the boss what he doesn't want to hear. But still, that was their job. They failed to do it and they will in due course have to accept the responsibility for that. So I think, you know, there's the possibility that if things do not go dramatically well, given essentially that Putin seems to operate on a three-month cycle, 
Um, well, in, in that situation, Gerasimov and maybe also Shoigu will go, and we might well therefore see a, a much more radical shake-up. Again, it's not something Putin likes to do at the best of times, but I think he, in some ways he will have boxed himself into a position. He cannot put Gerasimov in this job, see Gerasimov fail, and then essentially just simply appoint, I don't know, Surovikin back or, or, or someone else to joint command without there being some kind of implications for, for, for Gerasimov. So this could actually lead, be leading to a, a much more substantial kind of, of reshuffle. And that, in turn, will affect his relationship with his military. And I think this, this is the last thing I want to talk about. You know, again, I mentioned that, that Putin has no real uh, military experience. I think that also for all his attendance at military exercises and his keenness for wearing camouflage and photo opportunities, this is not also a man who I think understands the, the esprit de corps, the overall culture of Russian or indeed any uh, high command. You cannot continually put people in untenable positions, sack them or rotate them out when they don't do something that they couldn't possibly have done without that beginning to have an impact, without people beginning to notice the degree to which you seem to regard even your high-flying generals, and let's be honest, Surovikin was one of those, but even them as essentially disposable, and the degree to which, in fact, they're all there to provide alibis. They provide alibis for the Kremlin for the continued failure of what is ultimately Putin's war. Now, you know, we're only at the stage, I think, of just getting hints of this. And again, it does often come through the sort of the, the whole mill blogger milieu, which one has to be cautious about as a source. And I have to say, the next journalist who comes to me with, with, with some nonsense from the General SVR telegram channel asking me to, to talk about that, I mean, I will still be polite because I'm a polite kind of chap. But still, come on. Because people put things on Telegram, we should not necessarily regard them all at face value. And that doesn't just apply for, for General Esfer. I mean, I think generally speaking, we should appreciate that there are whole worlds of opinion which do not make it onto the, the, the popular social media channels. But nonetheless, you know, I, th I think there are, there are some sort of little suggestions which are also getting through more informal channels of just a, a degree of, in some cases, resignation, glum resignation, in some cases, rather more serious sort of annoyance um, at precisely being, being put into an unwinnable situation and then being penalised for not winning. Does this matter? Here and now, I would suggest not really. Look, one can assume that Russian generals and indeed other officers are in the main professionals and patriots. They will do their job to the best of their ability, which, you know, in some cases is not particularly exalted in terms of level. But nonetheless, they will do it. Because at present, what else are you going to do? Sure, you could, what, leave military service, live off your pension, I don't know, whatever. But basically speaking, they, just like all the other technocrats, the non-uniform technocrats in the government, in the financial system, in the city administrations and so forth, you know, what else are they going to do but just simply keep their head down, do their job and hope things work out? But there may well be a point when push comes to shove. There may well come a point at which actually issues are like how positively the military feel about Putin. 
just like the way that, in fact, you know, if one looks at their own telegram channels, there is clearly considerable disaffection within the Roscovardia, who feel that they're used as cannon fodder. You know, at present, that doesn't matter because they're not really being put into the kind of difficult position where they have to make difficult decisions. Sure, they'll police a little anti-war protest here and there, but they're not being expected to suppress uh, a many thousands strong protest march in some Monogorod where the, the main local factory has just been closed down or whatever. They're not being forced to, to make tough decisions at a time when Putin seems to be indisposed because he's ill or the country is facing a, a rolling domestic economic crisis or the front lines in Ukraine have just collapsed or whatever. One of the great strengths of the Shoigu Gerasimov double act was precisely, I would suggest, to depoliticize the military in the right way, to leave them feeling relatively happy, relatively confident. And we've got to remember, after all, that they, they took over uh, from a period when the generals were roundly despising their former, the former defense minister, Serdyukov. The military hierarchy was in absolute disarray. So you know, they managed to sort of re-knit it together give Russian soldiers a sense of, you know, feeling good about the situation. So they were not becoming Putinist stormtroopers, but nonetheless, you know, they, they basically felt some kind of affinity with the state that they felt was treating them properly. Obviously, that has all changed. And we really come back to my underlying point that essentially this is a regime which is still strong but increasingly brittle losing so many of its reservoirs of potential resources with which to deal with crises. And one of those is exactly is a sort of a bedrock assumption within the military that actually this was a regime which was right for them and right for Russia. I do wonder how much that is actually being questioned in the barracks back home and indeed in the trenches in, in Ukraine. Again, it doesn't mean that people are about to revolt, rebel, or just simply you know, run away. But on the other hand, if as and when there is some particular crisis, some particular pressure on this system, I don't think the status quo can presume that the military will be delighted to champion it. So that's my overall take. There is an irony in just how interesting I find looking at Gerasimov, considering how in many ways he's a deeply uninteresting man. And in some ways I think that's the point. He is almost the, the avatar of the Russian military professional. And precisely the way that he's now being put into an untenable position, I think is a metaphor for the wider state of the Russian military. And on some level... I think they know that. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. 
Товарищ 